Betrayal in Blue, the shocking memoir of the scandal that brought the NYPD is the story of Mike Dowd and Ken Urell, two cops who ran the most powerful gang in New York's dangerous 75th Precinct, the crack cocaine capital of 1980s America. These cocaine cops formed a lucrative alliance with Adam Diaz, the kingpin of an ever-expanding Dominican drug cartel. Soon, Mike and Ken were buying fancy cars no cop could afford and treating their wives to levels of luxury not associated with the patrol officer's salary. They were daring, dangerous, and untouchable. Then, the biggest scandal to hit New York Police, New York Police Department history exploded into the headlines with the arrest of Mike, Ken, and their fellow crooked cops. Released on bail, Mike offered Ken a long shot at escape to Central America, a bizarre plan involving robbery, robbery, kidnapping, and murder, forcing Ken to choose between two forms of betrayal. Adapted from Ken's shocking personal memoir, plus hundreds of hours of exclusive interviews with the major players, including former international drug lord Adam Diaz, Betrayal in Blue reveals the truth behind what you didn't see in the hit documentary, The 7-5. Now let me introduce you to the authors. Burl Bear is an Edgar Award-winning author and two-time Anthony Award nominee with extensive media, advertising, marketing, and public relations experience. Garnering accolades for his creative contributions to radio, television, and print media, Burl's career has been highlighted in the London Sunday Telegraph, New York Times, USA Today, Variety, and on ABC's Good Morning America. Burl is a frequent commentator on numerous true crime radio and television programs heard and seen worldwide, including True Murder, Epic Mysteries, Deadly Sins, Deadly Women, and Motives and Murders. Burl hosts the award-winning internet radio show True Crime Uncensored and Magic Matt Allen's Outlaw Radio USA.com. His true crime classic, Murder in the Family, is ranked at number three in the 10 best true crime books ever written, and Burl is listed as one of America's 100 must-read authors. Very impressive, Mr. Burl. I'm impressed myself. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to read one of my own books. (laughs) (laughs) Was born and raised in Queens, New York during the 1960s. He was hired by the NYPD, and at the age of 20, he was assigned to the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, for training, then assigned to the 75th Precinct in East New York section of Brooklyn. It wasn't until a fateful partner assignment that Ken was exposed to the dark side of NYPD, making the decision whether to cross over the thin blue line. After two years of criminal behavior as a police officer, Ken began to write down his exploits in a memoir. The criminal activity continued for three years until 1992 when he was arrested with his former partner. Today, Ken resides in Florida and remains married to his wife, Dory, of 31 years and stood by his, who has stood by his side. Together, they raised two successful children and enjoy spending time with their two grandsons. Gentlemen, welcome to CrimeWire. Pleasure to be Thank here. You. Thanks for having us. 
I do want to mention that there was a third author involved with the book who hasn't uh, been able to make it on the show today, and that's Frank Gerardo. And he's an American author, journalist, victim advocate, and radio host, CEO of Pegasus Communications, LLC, and a former editor and columnist for the Los Angeles News Group. Let's, uh, let's begin, if we can, by talking about uh, Ken and his, his time at the NYPD. Uh, now, when you started out uh, and were first hired, did you have any idea or any premonition of what was going to happen a few years down the road as far as your career? To, to be honest, I had no expectations at all. Uh, like like you said, I got on at a young age of 20 years old. I took a civil service exam, and I did really well on the exam. And I was called uh, before I was 20 to go through the applicant process and, you know, to a to the physicals and the medicals and the psychological evaluations and all that. As soon as I was turned, I turned 20 years old. I was hired a month later, and I was uh, in the academy. And my whole thing for even taking the police department test was back at that time in the 70s, a city job. And when I say city job, I mean fireman, sanitation, um, police officer was was uh, the best route, I should say, for someone who was blue-collar and didn't have a college education or something like that. So I was pushing that direction by my parents, and it was all about, you know, benefits and a, a good pension after 20 years, that type of thing. So you started out with no idea how it would end. Oh, um, absolutely, absolutely not, no. <laughs> okay. And, Burl, how did you happen to become involved with Ken in his uh, book project? This is a, a great story. I'm sure you'll appreciate it because, uh, you know, the, the true crime world, journalism world, is, is actually much smaller than people would imagine. And uh, we kind of, even if we don't know each other personally, we interact. Uh, Paul Guzzo is a great journalist in uh, Tampa. He's also an author. Dark Side of Sunshine is his book. And uh, perhaps he was a guest on your show at one time. He was uh, on mine a couple times. And a great guy. And apparently uh, Ken had asked him for advice on what to do with the memoir. Uh, Paul got hold of me, asked me if I'd be interested. Uh, sure, <laughs> I was very interested. I got hold of Frank Girardo, uh, who co-wrote uh, A Taste for Murder with me. This did quite well and fun to work with. And he was excited, too. So the uh, the three of us got together. And, boy, I'll tell you, we just clicked. It was a uh, it was a thrill to write this book. It really was. Now, you guys are from uh, different areas of the country here. Did you did you have personal meetings, or did you do most stuff by phone and email? It was it was mostly uh, a lot of text messaging and emails and phone conversations. And uh, unfortunately, we have not met yet, but perhaps we will one day at a book signing. Yeah, that'd be great. You know it. I find it incredible, um, really, to be able to never meet in person, at least not during the during the writing project, to meet in person, be from uh, you know different sides of the country and so forth, and have three people be able to put together a great book. Uh, I, I find that uh, quite an accomplishment. Uh, did you take it the same way? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a mere I'm sorry. Again. Thanks to Burl and, and uh, Frank, their writing skills are beyond compare. And uh, I had a 
50,000-word memoir. I emailed it both to them, and they started working, going to work on it. Yeah, we decided uh, early on, you know, what approach to take. And one of the lines that came up with that, that we, we used is that to appreciate a rose, you don't sniff the soil from which it grew. But to understand <laughs> a rose, but to understand a rose, you have to know what's in the soil, what fed it, what gave it life. And so we want to put this all in perspective. If we just told the story without, shall we say, showing you the soil for which it grew, it would just kind of be like an isolated thing. So we, we really wanted to show that, that this scandal, which was indeed one of the largest, if not the largest, contemporary NYPD history, is part of an ongoing ebb and flow process of the NYPD that's been going on since the day it was formed. Uh, you'll notice about every 20 years, BAM is another one of these, and as Ken can attest, uh, one reason they weren't busted earlier is the NYPD, even though they knew what they were doing, didn't want another scandal. So they kind of let it slide because of the publicity, the threat of... Uh... Well, I think, as Ken can tell you, I think there was, what did you have, the Buddy Boy scandal, the 77th Precinct, just prior to this? The last thing they wanted was another scandal, so they just let it keep going. I don't know if Ken was aware of how closely they were looking at him, though. What happened was the 7-7 scandal broke prior to my partnership with uh, with Dowd. And when that went down, there was huge rumors, actually, that our precinct, which was the 7-5 precinct, was going to go down in flames also with another scandal because everyone knew of the corruption there. I just wasn't involved in it yet. And what happened was a lot of the cops just started walking away from the police department hoping they wouldn't be arrested. But Dowd rolled the dice and gambled that the police department didn't want another scandal, and he was correct. So he stayed on, and when he stayed on, roll call started putting us together in a squad car, and I became privy to all the things he had done in the past. And uh, unfortunately, (laughs) greed took over in my life. When large sums of money are thrown in your face, it's hard to turn it away. Now, Ken, when you uh, when you got partnered up with Dowd and and saw firsthand what was happening and the amount of money that could be made in it, um, did you discuss like with your wife? Did you tell her you had a chance you know, to do this, or did you keep her out of it? The, the first time I had received some ill-gotten gains from dad. It was a very small amount. I didn't say nothing to my wife. I didn't do nothing with it. I just threw it up in my locker and let it sit there. As the sums of money got larger, when I first brought home a large stash of money, I just walked up to my wife. I told her, I'm going to be doing some things that aren't exactly up on the up and up, but we're going to be, I'm going to be careful and don't worry. I always told her, don't worry about it. I got this handled. I'm going to be able to take care of it. You know, And my wife was totally against it from the start she was like no i don't want you doing this you know i'll you know you, we don't need this for our family we could you know go live together in, a, in a, a trailer or my parents basement we don't need a big brand new house and uh, i didn't listen to her i should have listened to her and now when you first started when you first hooked up with dowd and started uh, uh doing some of these uh things that he was doing and uh were you very apprehensive? Like, did you think, oh, Jesus, uh, is anybody watching me? You know, were you paranoid at all about it, worried about uh, it? 
absolutely paranoid. In fact, a couple of times after that first event when he just stuck money right in my hand, we came across situations where there was money to be taken, and I found it first, and I wouldn't take it. I would go to Dowd and say, hey, right over there, there's some money, and I would count on him to get it. I, I did, really didn't want to be involved in it. I was reluctant, but the longer we stayed together, the more and more brazen I became, and uh, he smoothed the transition for me. And once the money climbed the ladder to at, uh, the height of it all, we were making $8,000 a week cash, Every week, put put in our hands, wow. wait for us. So I mean, when you get taking home seven hundred dollars biweekly in a paycheck, it, it's hard to walk away from that. But yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, Ken, uh, what would you say this? Also, with that adrenaline rush, part of that fear, and that actually doing it, uh, there must have been a fun aspect to it. After a while, <laughs> I don't know if it was if it was exact. It was fun when you got away with it. And, yeah. and, you know, the, the adrenaline rush actually went down. Um, when he first started doing it, 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 was, it was a bridge, a line I had to cross, that, you know, thin blue line between cop and criminal. And I, my choices were take the money he shoved in my hand, not take the money, but I'm just as guilty because I know he just robbed money, or go to internal affairs and which is basically and tell on him, which is basically cutting my own throat in the department. You can't rat somebody out in that department because your career path is over. You, that you that will ruin ruin your career. So, so it's a rough situation. I, mean, I can recall that the uh, the fellow uh, was telling me that there were people caught cheating in the ethics class. <laughs> you know, they didn't kick them out. I mean, when you're caught cheating in the ethics class, there's something wrong. Uh, I mean, the, the whole situation, I mean, I can understand it, Denny, and I'm sure, I mean, you've been in the, the law enforcement and everything. Uh, you know, these are the same guys that are going to have your back if you need help. These are the guys you're calling on for backup. But if they can't trust you, you know, you wind up like Serpico with a bullet in your face. Yes, as the backup suddenly gets a little gets caught in traffic, <laughs> it gets get there a little late. Uh, well, how how deep do you think situations like this go in NYPD, and and do you think that there's still pockets of this going on today? I'm sure there are, but as deep as it was back then. Well, we we were like as opposed to the '60s when everybody was on the take. They actually had a pad where guys went out and everyone got a cut of the money and it went entirely up the chain. Dowd and I were was, was sort of rare. We, I'd like to keep it, once I got involved in it, was very isolated. I didn't want anyone to know what we were doing for fear of someone turning us in or us being arrested. And Dowd was the opposite. He was more comfortable with the more cops that knew what we were doing. He felt safer. So, But <laughs> as, as far as today, I would say... It's probably still going on, not to the extent that we did it. And also, you got cameras, and, and uh, every every civilian's out there with a, a cell phone camera, and cops are wearing cameras. There's cameras in the patrol cars. It's it's probably a lot harder to get away with. And most of this money was coming through this uh, Diaz guy and his his drug uh, drug operation. Yes, Adam Diaz. Uh, Adam. We had we had an original agreement with a different uh, Dominican drug company. And uh, what happened was they had shorted us money, so we discontinued working with them. And we had a middleman who was a trusted man in the community. 
who owned a stereo shop, and the drug deals would all go there to get work done on their car, and all trusted him, and we trusted him because he was a legitimate businessman. So all the money would go through that shop, and we wouldn't have to be seen with Diaz, who was a known drug trafficker. Did did you have a relationship with Diaz? Uh, in other words, did you have any feelings? Did you uh, like him? Did you, did you respect him? Did you dislike right. him? But he was just a money thing. When I when I we I met Diaz the first time we had a, a meeting for the original agreement, and uh, I saw him. He was a drug dealer, but he presented himself as a businessman, and that's how I saw him. He was out there making money. He wasn't dressed in you know. Uh, droopy pants and a big oversized shirt or, you know, nothing. He didn't have a gun on him. He was dressed in a pair of slacks, a button-down shirt, shoes, and he presented himself as a businessman. And I I got the feeling right away, this is the man that's going to make us a lot of money. You know, an interesting Uh thing about uh, Adam Diaz, Denny, is uh, one of the people we interviewed for the book is uh, Pavle Podstetimirovic, who was the you know, Jim Heist mastermind back in those days uh, in the diamond district, stealing millions of dollars worth of diamonds. And it just goes <laughs> to show that the difference in attitude. He says, let me quote him here, if you were writing the history of the really great drug dealers, the ones who brought excellent product at decent prices to the people who wanted it, Adam Diaz ranks one of the most admired and respected drug-dealing gangsters. If they gave medals for outstanding corruption that benefited the local economy and kept the coke quality high, Diaz down in URL deserve awards. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. You know, if you're, if you're bringing in $8,000 a week or more cash money, no taxes, what on earth did you spend it all on? Where did it all go? It, it goes on everything. I mean, you you go from, like, I, I had, at the time, I had a small Cape-style house, very small house, and next thing I know, you know, Eight months later, I'm building a brand-new custom high ranch, three levels with an in-ground pool and brick patio, two-story two deck in the backyard. I ended up – I had a, a very old Corvette before I met Mike. After I met Mike, I had a Corvette that was brand-new. You know, it was <laughs> crazy, crazy. You just, you know, the money goes. You got that cash, it goes. Um. Bro, you, try to sell, you know, you try to sock it away for, an, for a rainy day also. Yeah, what was there, the question, there, Denny? Eventually, there is always a rainy day in a life of crime. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, once, uh, once the three of you then decided to do this project together, um, did each one of you have like an assignment? In other words, did you do most of the writing or did you and Frank share the writing or – how did you? It's a, I'm, I'm, kind of an interesting thing that is that Ken, of course, is the leading world's leading expert on Ken. <laughs> so anytime <laughs> there was any question at all, uh, and boy, there was a lot back and forth, and him clarifying things. We wanted this to be as absolutely accurate and honest uh, as humanly possible, and so did he. Because God forbid we get something wrong. And uh, he's on a radio or TV show doing an interview. Dad's going to call up and say, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> so oh, yeah. we, wanted, yeah. we wanted to make sure everything was right. And uh, uh, Frank, bless his heart, did uh, the vast majority of the of the interviews. Uh, I was doing historical research 
I'm pulling kind of the uh, the metaphors and analogies together. Uh, Frank would write and send me stuff, and I'd rewrite and send it back, and he'd add. And they're just for some reason, Frank and I work together very, very well, and uh, it's just a blessing. Uh, and so, the writing part was actually uh, fun and easy. Uh, the research wasn't difficult, and I think maybe Ken's biggest stressor was making sure we didn't get anything wrong. I mean, he already had over fifty thousand words, you know. Uh, from that he wrote at the time, but she was lucky the cops didn't. When he got arrested, they didn't confiscate that as a confession. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. that's, actually, that's actually a funny story. When they raided my house, Suffolk County Police Department raided my house back in 19, May of 1992, and they were tearing my house apart looking for drugs and money and you know all the paraphernalia that goes along with the crimes. And I had probably a good 100 pages of my memoir was sitting in, on my bureau in my bedroom, and they came across it not realizing what it was and basically just pushed it to the side and it flooded all you know through the air to the ground. It was all over the place. It was basically <laughs> a handwritten confession right in front of them, and they had no idea. <laughs> Throw that confession away. It's getting, it's getting our way. Yeah, we, we don't need this. This is, this is only papers. We're looking for you know, drugs and money. <laughs> they, they, they took the $25 out of my kid's piggy bank, but you know the con- written confession, it's just tossed that aside. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Did uh, Ken in the in the days leading up to your arrest, just prior to your arrest, did you have a sense anything was wrong? Did you know? You know, I did had, you feel something was coming down? I had a, a huge sense that everything was going down. I probably they started investigating. What happened was I had a number of dealers working for me because we ended up selling, starting to sell drugs on our own. We became our own drug gang. And one of those dealers had sold to an undercover cop back in January. So it was a big six-month investigation. Probably about three months before they raided my house, I had a bad feeling something was going wrong. And I ran, actually ran the license plate number of one of Suffolk County's undercover cops. And when I did it, it came came back they happened to be listening in because it was at my dealer's house and they already had his phone wired, which I didn't know at that time until I ran the plate. <laughs> and they were basically freaking out. Oh, my God, how's this guy able to, you know, run the plate of our undercover officer? <laughs> but when I found, found out there was undercover cops following one of my dealers, I cleared out my house. I didn't have nothing in my house anymore. And unfortunately for, my, for me, I was already on tape and, they, you know, they had – everything they needed to do to arrest everybody. Now, Ken, so, i got a question for you that I had to ask before. And as long as we're here, I'll ask it. Uh, you guys seemed pretty safe from getting busted as long as you were in New York because they didn't want a scandal. Where you got popped was when you went off to Long Island. If you would have dealt in New York City, do you think you could have gone a lot longer? Uh, I would say maybe. I mean, we could have gone gone longer out where we were, if if my dealer was careful, if I if I was more careful, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So yeah. I mean, eventually it all it all crumbles. Someone someone gets sloppy somewhere when there's too many people involved. That's why even from the beginning I didn't want so many people involved. But you know, as <laughs> as the years go by, you get sloppy and uh, more people yeah. get involved, and so, someone someone messes up along the line, and then it, you know it's a big pyramid. Everyone goes down. Yeah, I can recall uh, I was speaking at Washington State Penitentiary. 
speaking to inmates there, talk about the importance of, you know, self-reliance and, you know, goal setting and self-determination. And after my talk, one of the prisoners comes up and says, I can't thank you enough, Mr. Bear. You gave me some great insights. I said, well, be specific. What do you mean? He said, next time I pull a bank job, I'm doing it all by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Good study. Um, Quick study, that guy. (laughs) Ken, uh, the day you were arrested, they arrest you at work, at home, or how did that come down? What happened was, like I was saying, uh, probably about two, three months before, before the arrest went down, I was, I realized they were onto us, and I cleared everything out. That particular night in May, I went out to pick up. I was still involved, but not directly involved. People were doing all the work for me, and I was just collecting money. So I went to this one dealer's house who originally sold to the undercover, and I was going there to pick up money he owed me. And I was in the house maybe five, ten minutes, and Suffolk County slammed the door and came charging down the hallway with the shields and riot helmets, and that was that was the end of the game. So I thought. Uh, <laughs> when when you uh, when the arrest uh, it did take place, and then uh, you know through the through the processing and so forth, how how did the cops treat you? Did did uh, they seem to have disrespect because, you know, a fellow officer went bad, that type of thing. Or did they treat you like anybody else? Or It, it, was, it was a 50-50. There, there was, I, one cop was, you know, told me how disgusted he was with us and all that other, other stuff. And then there, there were other cops that were, you know, do you need this? Do you need a soda? Do you need anything? Can I, can I do something for you? And then uh, once we were in, in lockup, the uh, the correction officers were, were you know decent. They treated us basically like everyone else. They weren't didn't give us a hard time. They didn't give us anything prefer. I, they didn't give us anything preferential. What happened was, I actually got preferential treatment from the other prisoners because we were in the papers every day. We were like you know superstars to them. Here, here are these uh, cops that are or that crossed the line to their side. And now we're in there with them. So they they were actually good. They were giving me extra food, extra milk. You're supposed <laughs> to get a little pint of milk. They were giving me the big quart of milk. So. <laughs> yeah, it's good so, to know where your friends are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Burl, when when uh, when you decided to to get in on the project, did you pitch it to a publisher first, or did you do the writing and then market oh, it after? We, uh, How did- we, we pitched it first. We said, this is what we got. Uh, it's the Wild Blue Press, who I've uh, done a couple, three books with. I, I lose track. You know, I'm so prolific. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, they're, they're just great. Wild Blue Press is great great to work with. And the, things get done quickly, and they're great on promotion. And uh, Plus, they're very easy to work with. I said, hey, we got an opportunity to do this. What do you think? They said, great. That <laughs> sounds great to us. And that was it. We were off and running. What? Uh, this might be a good time to let the listeners know where they can get your book. Can they get it through the publisher or Amazon or? Yes, whatever? they they can uh, do that. They can go directly to wildbluepress.com and uh, order it there, or they can order it from Amazon.com. As and the nice thing is, ladies and gentlemen, is that all three uh, formats, a uh, paperback. Ebook for your Kindle, for example, or audiobook, and I love the audiobook, uh, are all available right now, and uh, 
You know, you could buy one, buy two, get all three, live it up. Uh, Kevin <laughs> Pierce did a narration on the uh, audio book, and I did the uh, the introduction that I wrote. So you get both of uh, uh, Kevin Pierce and Burl Bear on the audio book, and of course you get all three of us if you read the uh, the ebook or the paperback. I'm really happy with all of it, so I I couldn't be more delighted. It's, it's easy to buy and uh, uh, easy to read. Beautiful. And this is a Wild Blue Press. That's the publisher. Yeah. yeah I got a lot of good true crime authors on there. Uh, Ken, back to back to you after the arrest and you're in lockup and so forth. Now, Dowd is Dowd in the same area that you're housed in? Yeah, we're uh, we're both we're both together, and there was uh, probably six other cops there with us, and. Uh, I basically thought the game was over. Okay, we're arrested. Let's, you know, get our lawyers and get them together and, you know, make the best deal they can, make the best plea deal we can. Because we're facing 25 years to life. I mean, we're still young at the time. We're 32 years. I was 32. I think Mike was 31. And uh, I was like, let's just cut the best deal we can. I mean, they were going to make examples of us. So uh, when we finally got out, it probably took us uh, almost two months to make bail because the bills were ridiculously high, and then we had bail hearings and all bail reduction hearings, and then they raised it back up. It was a whole rigmarole. So uh, once we were out, my wife was, uh, again, thanks to her, that's uh, why I'm in the positions I'm in. And she got me a very good lawyer, spent no, uh, spared, spared no expense on it. And uh, my lawyer started, you know, making the best deal he can for me with the uh, – with the uh, district attorney for Suffolk County, and at the time it was probably we were probably out about a month and a half, and I, according to my lawyer, was going to get that 25 years if we do a plea deal, don't go to trial, possibly eight, ten years. So I was happy with that. I figured it would be out when I'm 40 years old or so, and uh, Dowd and his lawyer apparently did not know that, and at the time Dowd who owned. I think he owned four houses. I mean, he, he was uh, rolling his money over a lot of houses. He had three Colombian drug dealers living in one of his houses, and they approached him <laughs> with, a, with a deal to go rob and kidnap and turn over for execution the wife of a drug dealer who owed them a lot of money, who he w- walked away with a lot of drugs. So he approached me with this, and I was like, you're out of your mind. We're not doing that. And he was insistent. No, this has to be done. We, you know, we're not going to jail for 25 years. That's that's crazy. And uh, I tried to blow him off as much as I can. Not answer the phones. You know, try to try to be out when he came over. And what happened was, now the federal prosecutors are looking into our case because Diaz and his group and uh, a couple of other drug dealers that we worked with years before see us in the papers, and that they want to make their best deal to shave time off their sentences. So they went to the federal prosecutors, and now the federal prosecutor approaches my lawyer wants me to come in and talk. So I go to Dad. I go, federal prosecutors want to talk to me. I'll let you know what's going on. I go talk to the federal prosecutors, and I sit down with them, and for maybe 10 minutes, they started telling me stuff that they shouldn't have known, that only three or four people in the world knew 
So I know they're talking to someone else who was in that group with me and Dowd. So me and my lawyer, we get up, we walk away, we'll tell them, you know, we'll get in contact with them. We need to discuss what we're going to do. When I get home, Dowd is waiting for me on my front steps. He wants to know what the federal prosecutors said. And I told him exactly what was going on. I said, someone's talking, someone's giving up all the information from years ago. This is no longer about the Suffolk County drug case. This is about now the things we did in the precinct as cops. And my, my whole thing was, that's it. We need to cut the best deal we can because we're going to get screwed over. And he went, again, the total opposite way. He's, that's all the more reason we need to do this thing. Which, and this thing was <laughs> the kidnapping and Murder. go rob this uh, drug dealer's wife and turn her over to the Colombians in his house. So when I couldn't blow that off no more, I went to the federal prosecutors a second time, and I didn't tell them about it. And I cut a deal with the prosecutors. Um. You probably saved his life. More, more than likely, that's what happened. Yeah. If, 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 we, if I would have agreed with him and we would have went on with this deal, we would have we went there, went through this whole rigmarole, and Colombians do not leave witnesses. So when we would have did this, they would have not only executed the woman, they would have executed myself in doubt. So more than likely, I did save his life and my own life. Well, that was, it, that's uh, why we called the book. See, this is why we called the book Betrayal of Blue, because, you know, the cops aren't supposed to cooperate against another cop. And you just don't betray them that way. But here's the situation from the way I look at it, and I, you know, as an outsider writing this book, this is this, the analogy I came up with is Sophie's choice in a squad car. If he doesn't turn over <laughs> his best friend, his best friend might get killed. If he does, then he's going to look like he betrayed his best friend. Well, you can't, you know, you can't win. You can't. What the hell are you supposed to do? What's the higher priority? Well, the higher priority is always to save a life. And even if he didn't save his life, he sure as hell saved him from doing a hell of a lot more prison time. Yeah, uh, yeah, those those situations there are never any real good choices. Uh, but uh, you know, you got what you got. You, you like you say, you got to make the best choice of what's available. Um, now, Kenya is like the. Your property, uh, your house and stuff, did did you have to give anything up? I mean, did, uh, did they, you lose anything they, financially? Yeah, they, they confiscated all the cash I had in my house. They tried to freeze my bank. They, actually, they did freeze my bank accounts. They confis- I had three cars at the time. I had a brand-new Corvette, a brand-new Lincoln, and my wife had a, a little uh, Chevy that was a year old. And they confiscated all that. They took that all away, and they also put a lien on my house, and then... Apparently, I was going to lose all that, I guess, unless I had a lawyer to fight fight for it all. When I sat down with the federal prosecutors, they took the lien off my house because I was cooperating, and uh, that was it. That's what I got back, basically my house. I was allowed to keep my house, and, and I had to end up sell, selling it and you know, move out of state based on my cooperation. Now, as part of the deal, do you have to do any actual prison time? Well, what happened is you get a... The deal they cut you, it, it, there's no, you tell us this and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give you this. It's called Queen for a Day. You sit down with them, you tell them every criminal act you ever did, you were ever involved in, and if they catch you in any lie from other cooperating witnesses or other evidence, 
then your deal is off and you're thrown back out to the sharks. So I sat down, I told them everything I did, and based on that, when time comes for your sentencing, when it's all over and all the cases are over, they'll go in front of the judge and speak to the judge to tell you tell the judge your level of cooperation and then the judge based on that has to follow the federal sentencing guidelines and uh i ended up getting walking away she gave me no time it was judge kimball wood the the prosecutor the prosecutor actually said in his time as a federal prosecutor he was at that time was seven years he said i gave them the most valuable cooperation of any witness they ever had so i think Basically, that's what saved me. And then was the whole thing, my lawyer presented a whole thing about, you know, um, if, uh, re, re, not rewarding, but if you give a cop that cooperates a large sentence, it will deter any other cop from the future from cooperating. There's no incentive for anyone to ever cooperate. That's true. It is difficult enough to get one to cooperate. And I would think uh, too now when you you know when you're in your for a day uh, uh, session where you have to tell them everything instead of be honest uh, that uh, you know if you one thing you probably don't know for sure who else is cooperating that might what information they have on you already exactly because it becomes a chess game whether you know you got to know all the players and think about who's already in custody who who's going to cooperate who's who on the outside is you know looking to make that there were you got to remember there were four or five other cops arrested with doubt of myself so i know somewhere along those lines one of those cops are going to be sitting down because they don't just call my lawyer they're calling all the lawyers come we want to talk to your to your uh, to your client, so which and that ended up happening. Dowd's current partner in 1992 ended up cooperating also. So it, it becomes well, it becomes you, a big chess game. Who gets out there first? Right. Can you bring us up to date today? Like, what what ty- what kind of a life are you leading now? And and Dowd as well. Um, are you still suffering any repercussions from all of this happening to you? Well, this all, the, the crimes themselves went down in, in the 80s and the early 90s. I was uh, arrested in 92. I ended up moving out of state. And uh, I basically, what basically happened is my wife went back to work. I stayed at home, raised the children for a few years until they were old enough. Then I went back to work. I worked in the automotive field. And uh, that, that's basically what happened with us. And, and we just lived basically a normal life down here in uh, Florida. And uh, Dowd, Dowd ended up doing 11 years in prison. He was uh, facing uh, the 25 to life, and he did his level of cooperation. He sat down in front of the Marlin Commission. He testified to all his, basically what I did, but he did it on live TV. And uh, they ended up giving him, uh, four, I think it was 14 years, and then he got out, got out in 11. I got a kick out of the watch of the Mullen Commission uh, thing on TV, the films of it, when they they asked him the name of the Dominican drug dealer he was working for, and he goes, I'm not sure. I think his name was Fred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Dominican drug dealer. His name was Fred. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, uh, 
did you, uh, Ken, have any second thoughts about doing the book? Did you ever, you know, think well, maybe well, I should really do the it? The book was really, the book was always my main objective. When I was doing all these crimes, I was I was like outside my body doing these crimes. I knew it was so outrageous that somewhere along the line, there, there's a book in here or a movie, and I just started taking notes and writing everything down. And uh, once my the arrest was over and all the court cases were over and I was sentenced, I, I ended up getting sentenced in 1990, late 95 or early 96. Then I started finishing my memoir and putting it all together. I was looking for authors back then, but by that time, there was... Everything I got back was, well, this is an old story. No, you know, it's already out of the news. It would have been good to do this back in 1992. So everybody was basically blowing me off. So what I did, I built a little website, and I put a very short version of my memoir on the website. And along comes this director who is looking to do a, a documentary on police corruption, and he came across my website and wrote to the email address I had put on the website. And we started talking back and forth, and uh, the producer, who was uh, Eli Holtzman, at the time we were going through our crimes and Dowd was testifying before the Mullen Commission, this guy was a teenager in New York City, and he used to cut out of school to go home and watch the live Mullen Commission because it interested him that much. And he said, he said to himself, I sat down and talked with him, he said to himself, I'm going to make a movie about this someday when I become, you know, a big movie producer. And that's what happened. He became a movie producer, and uh, he wanted to do a documentary on our story. And that brought it all back to life. And once the documentary came out, then I started writing uh, authors again, and Burl and I hooked up. Yeah, sure glad we did. Yeah, me too. And this is this was a long time coming for me. It was a long project that I tried to get uh, done a long time. Well, the thing is, I think that because the story is so fascinating that uh, this is what we say in the show business, this story has legs. Uh, <laughs> you know, Even if the book doesn't uh, rise to the top of the bestseller list this week or next, it's still going to be selling in 10 years. Uh, you know, it's yeah. one of those stories that's not going to go away that uh, is, uh, you know, uh, seldom equal in the annals of police corruption, at least to the point where people know about it. And you've got colorful characters that are real, relatable, and honest to God, real people. And as uh, Denise Wallace, who herself is a, an excellent writer, said, never, I have to kind of paraphrase, never before has the, uh, the wife of a corrupt cop been so forthcoming uh, and, and honest and straightforward about what it was like for her uh, dealing with the whole situation. The fact that the Dorian Kent are still together after all these years, and she cooperated uh, with the book also. Uh, it's very rare that you get that uh, in this kind of a book, you know, where the wives are offering commentary. Yeah, and um, I don't know, I, I'm, of course, a true crime guy. I, I love to read true crime and so forth. And this just uh, seems to me that, that somewhere in the, along the line there ought to be a movie. Actually, Sony came along and they bought the rights. They bought the rights to my life. Beautiful. Yeah, so uh, there is a movie in the process. It's uh, I met the director, I met the writer, the screenwriter a couple of times each, 
and they're in the process of doing it. So everyone's chance. Here it is to do your history, buy the book, know about it, and then relate it to the movie. They always say the book is always better than the movie. <laughs> we'll <Yeah>. find out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope the movie does well. It'll help book sales. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we got to wrap up here in a minute. Uh, Ken, I, I, uh, before we close, uh, do you have any advice you'd like to give to maybe some uh, some so, young so rookie or... officer in this situation? Yes, don't do it. Uh, if 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 they're you know exposed to the, the corruption, they're, they're with a partner or another cop that exposes them to corruption. All I can tell you is, do not get involved with it. If you if you have to. Go to a lawyer, tell the lawyer what's going on. If they stick money in your hand, put it in some escrow account, let a lawyer deal with it. Uh, if you go to a boss or internal affairs, everyone's seen the movie Serpico. That, they, that's cutting your own throat. You've got to count on those guys to come come and save you. And uh, if you're turning them in, they're not, not going to be there. So the, the, the alternative is to go to a lawyer, let a lawyer know what's going on, you know. Something, something, something like to go to an outside agency. Good yeah, advice, you don't. Uh, mm-hmm. I can say about true crime authors, Denny, as you know, is never investigate a crime or a corruption in the town you live in. Absolutely. We're out of time. We got to go, but I look. I, I really appreciate your being on with us. It's just really a fascinating story, and. Uh, uh, for me as a writer, the, the story, Ken's story is fascinating. And the way you three were able to do this from cross country and pull it off is is fascinating also. So the best of luck with the book and uh, the best of luck with the movie. Thanks. Thank uh, you. The audience could follow me on Twitter at Ken Urell and they'll get updates on uh any book signings and updates on the upcoming Sony movie and Frank and Burl are also on Twitter. Follow them. Yeah, we're, we're all we, we can stalk us. It's all right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. okay, gentlemen. Thanks again, and thanks also to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Okay, bye, bye, everybody. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon, Burl.